Do, is there like a alcohol delivery service? Uh, no, I'm. If they haven't regulated against it, they should. That's terrible. Does California have one? Because they've had they've had public uh, liquor longer than we have. Oh man. Dude. What? We can't talk about this subject in the podcast, though, because Kalina said we're not allowed to talk about things we don't know. Uh-oh. Yes. What if I know about it? What if that's the premise of the podcast? <laughs> so today, um, since I was coming here right after work, because, you know, Garner, you're nice enough to, to host this, since it takes place in your home. Yeah. On a weekend, or a weekday, because my weekends are all fucked up over the summer. Um... My work bathroom, we have two. One inside the office and one attached to the outside of the office. And the one inside is very nice because that's where the office lady goes to the bathroom. And the one outside is reserved for the rest of us. And I'm not usually a germaphobic sort of person, but this bathroom is nasty. Does, like, does it have a sign outside that says Apache helicopter? No. Okay. It has no signage outside. Oh. You have the right to take a shit there, you regardless. Have the, you have the right to to consider taking a shit there or out behind the shop. All right. Because that might be a cleaner option. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they've been doing in there, but apparently they considered that they wanted to remodel, so they tore down the soap dispensing fixture and the toilet paper and paper towel dispensing fixture, and then realized they didn't want to replace them. And so now they've just set the toilet paper roll on the counter and offered no soap option. High class. Yeah, because who needs soap for your hands? And so I had a very interesting time changing in that room into civilian clothes out of my gross sweaty uniform and uh, trying desperately not to stand on or set clothes on any surface that wasn't a plastic bag that I brought with me. <laughs> it was a, a gymnastic feat and um, and generated a lot of gross sweat. Because it's really hot today. Yeah, it is. Ugh. The weather's been terrible the last few days, in my opinion. And of course, Brady, our guest, we're, we're such good hosts on the podcast that we made him cater the event. Yes. And he decides to bring spicy tacos. Yes. <laughs> Which were good. Which were really tasty. I'm working out great for my uh, 100 push-ups a day challenge. <laughs> day three. Getting, I'm getting that protein. Brady brought it for me. Even though he said he resents my machismos. Yeah. Garner's getting swole, but we don't know if that's just a, a medical reaction to the sudden activity increase. Like swollen, maybe. I'll tell you what, I do hurt in places that I thought push-ups did not cause hurting. <laughs> it hurts really bad under my armpits. Oh, yeah? I bet, yeah. You, I bet your back feels great, though. Uh, yeah. And I have, like, this bizarre posture now. Like, by the end of the day, I'll, like, start walking around, like, all puffed out like I'm Arnold or something. My arms, like, just hang slack from my body. They're like, we quit. <laughs> We're not playing around with the posture anymore. So it's pretty good. Like it's like those old skeletal models. They're like, see, this is your body when you're at the desk and your shoulders are all pushed forward and you have like the little T-Rex hands. You know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. And, but then after I push the arms all day until they hate me, they don't do the T-Rex hands thing anymore. They're just like, fuck it. Gravity. How's <laughs> your ass? You. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get this intro rolling and, and talk about something 
less uh, personal and sweaty. All aboard! Tangent Train is now departing to destinations unknown. Today's conductors are Garner and Josh. We did the intro. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Tangent Train. I'm your host, Josh. Joined by Garner. Garner! And our special guest, return guest, The Brady! The Brain. And, uh, yeah. It's good to have you back, Brady. Uh, it's good to be back. Sometimes it's good to get a third opinion here to tell us that we're not always right all the time. I'm pretty sure that you guys just had these things pre-recorded. I thought you'd pull them out of the box and I just <laughs> came in for when you didn't have filler. Oh well. Uh, it's kind of like that. Except for, um... Occasionally, we're like, man, you know what would be great right about now is one of those, like, April Fool's episodes. Oh, no. <laughs> and then we're like, ha-ha, you thought you'd gotten away from the Brady episode, but we don't we don't mark them. I, I, think, I think a small part of it might be that our, uh, our quiet studio audience isn't with us today, and we f- would feel lonely without a third person around. Ah, I see. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, that's fair. Our fact-checker studio audience, a.k.a. Yeah. You might have heard her in one or two of the uh, cold opens, but uh, unfortunately she's not here with us today. Hey, I don't have the ability to fact-check. In fact, I'm going to support your bullshit, so... He's just like, more bullshit. Yeah. I, I Pile it on. Bullshit. I pulled my smartphone in bullshit, bullshit, in bullshit. case I feel like looking something up. So we were talking before this started, and um, I recently, you know, as, as you guys know, the books, I got the books, I went to school for a little bit, and uh, in it I took some philosophy courses and I thought they were great, and then of course, um, a favorite YouTube show of mine called Crash Course is currently doing Crash Course Philosophy. Oh. And uh, I just plugged them, and they're not going to give me shit for it, but you should watch Crash Course Philosophy. It's great. I actually have been watching it. I'm probably two or three episodes in, and, and it's hosted by Hank Green, who's a pretty popular YouTuber. I got that name right. Yeah, I think it's pretty... Sh- I'm pretty sure it's Hank Green. Yeah, and uh, he, he's a cool guy, a really smart guy, and the show is really informative without being very droll. It's not like typical philosophy discussions. Although, there is a lengthy segment, and they have to do it, about God. Because when we go take philosophy class, there's a lot of philosophy about God. But I am God. Oh, never mind. <laughs> oh. Well, we discussed you at length. Okay. And we don't believe in you. Cool. I'm good with this. Now, um, we reserve the right that you may or may not exist. Yeah. As it should be. So a recent episode, the most recent episode, is about determinism. Ooh. About whether or not you got free will. And so Brady likes to talk about, like, our mind and our bodies. You know what I'm talking about, Brady. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's, there's one side of this argument that's like, look, every action had a cause. Everything in the universe was caused by something prior to it. And in the video, they even discuss about how it could all lead back to one singular thing that rippled out and caused the other things. We're still coping for the Big Bang. Oops. <laughs> yeah. And the idea is is that if everything has a cause, then do you actually make choices? I'm going to say only sometimes. Only sometimes. Ah, the, the both options. Like, I will never choose. The option is... <laughs> Yes, and... <laughs> We're going hard synthesis. How about you, Josh? Do you think that every action has a cause, 
and that you don't really make choices. Well, I don't have a hard opinion on this hmm. because I, for one, don't feel qualified to make sure a hard decision. But my personal belief is that cause and effect is very clear. That it definitely seems to be a factor of the universe. Good old physics is there to stand by your side and say, yep, if you jump, you're going to fall. And uh, and so while I do believe in um, causation, I also believe in the power of free choice as a belief form. All right. So it's difficult to hold both at once. That's Certainly. kind of what the podcast is about, what the video was about. Because if you believe that every event had a cause, then what caused the free acting agent? But and now, how does it make it choices? And what caused you to make them choices? And so I'm not going to let you get off the hook so easy, Garner. Yeah. What's, what's your opinion? Okay, so my personal opinion is that I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the bad thing here. I'm gonna have a controversial t- decision here. Yay! Do it. I'm gonna say definitively that there is such a thing as free will, and that determinism is a lie. Ooh. Oh. That's pretty Snappy. harsh. Yeah. I mean, I do believe that for the most part we have like ninety percent free will, or probably more than that. But I think that. Given our evolutional and instinctual patterns and habits and all these hard wirings that humans have, I think that there is some predetermination. At least in our modern day society, we have to do this thing of survival. That means going to work and sleeping and all this other stuff. Food is pretty easy to get. Pretty easy for most of us. For us. But I'm going to say that uh, that hardwiring and predetermination does defeat the argument just wholesale because the body would kind of go crazy and take the mind with it just to survive. So I'm going to double down on my controversial statement. I am pretty much saying that our concept of cause and effect is just the way we like it. That's true. That's just the way we like it. I suppose it is our choice if we're going to starve and go crazy from hunger or whatever. Well, I think I'm going to pull you all back here a step and say, perhaps for the sake of the audience, um, because I know we all here know what determinism is, that he says sarcastically. Let me roll some dice. Um, We should should maybe lay some ground. Okay, well, I, I mostly explained it already, but the idea would be is that you know, dice don't roll of their own accord. Like, let's say, you know, for for the sound effect here, I'm going to pick up some dice. Yeah. There you go. And uh, somebody had to have rolled them, and it was me. Right. And that the result that the dice gave was due to many factors. The hardness of my table, how I rolled them, so on and so on. That's determinism at its heart. That there was a reason the dice ended up the way that they did, and there's a reason the, the dice moved, and it just turns out, it was because I picked them up and I rolled them the way I did. And if you follow the determinism down its, its rabbit hole, it would start to suggest that the reason Garner picked up and threw said dice is because of determinism. Right. It's, it's because of, perhaps, say, chemical reactions in his brain from, from outside an institution. And, and it all draws back to, so what was the thing that started the ball rolling in the first place and put everything in motion? Yeah, determinism is actually really interesting because it is both in line with and in conflict 
with the idea of an eternal God. Yeah. If it's in line with a, a, a perfect God, because, well, then that God started it and kicked the ball rolling and watched it happen. It's not really in line with this perfect God, because then why does this God ask you to not do things? This God knows what you're going to do. It's a very hands-off God. Scott's like, try to beat the game. You don't have any choices. This is like a god who's going to bake a cake and then just watch the cake mold. Yeah. <laughs> Neo, you've already made the choice. You're just trying to understand it. Yeah. See, I think that for the most part, the god concept is something that we internalize and externalize at the same time, so it becomes this really weird subject because technically everyone is their own philosophical zombie at a certain point but then it also means well buddy you can't just drop philosophical zombie most people don't know what that is okay so so you have to get right into solipsism and we're talking about determinism so just briefly touch on your solipsisms okay so for everyone that doesn't know about solipsism the philosophical zombie means that you are the center of the universe the only conscious being everyone you encounter is just a mirror or extension of yourself and therefore cannot feel anything because you aren't them. They are essentially a zombie. Almost like a Minecraft game if you think about it. You run around and technically all these um, areas can be generated, but they're only generated when you go there. Yep. So that's very solipsism. Like you... They're, they were never there until you showed up. The universe doesn't exist unless it's perceived by some living being. So, like, when you walk around in Minecraft and you encounter the villagers, you know they are zombies. They're just controlled by the computer. It's the same way, it, to, to further the Minecraft metaphor, that all animals and NPCs in Minecraft um, stop behaving. Like, they just stop doing anything after you're a certain distance away from them where you couldn't possibly interact with them. Right. If it's impossible for them to interact with them, they're just like, oh, turn it off. This sort of stuff like always creeps me out. By the way, like I'm like, I'm a paranoid kind of guy. Like whenever they show like those, um, those gifs online, gifs, you know, whatever, gif. <laughs> Look, our president weighed in on this, and I'm pretty sure he said that it's a gif. And the internet police are coming for him right now. Anyways, <laughs> so. So pretty much, you know, when, like whenever they show like a picture and, and it's like some creepy pasta picture, it's like a girl. She's looking at a mirror and she looks away. She's smiling at you, but in the picture it shows like some freaked out version of her. Yeah, that sort of cra- crap just creeps me out. Like I always am thinking that that like the moment I turn away, there's someone there. <laughs> it just drives me nuts. Like sometimes it keeps me up at night. Like you, I'll patrol around the home. Are you the kind of kid who is like? Tried to figure out desperately whether or not the fridge light stays on when you close the door. I was. I actually, at times, contemplated whether or not my parents were actually there when I went in my bedroom. Oh, my God. I tried to figure out if there was some way that I could prove it. And so it was It was pretty challenging. That's pretty weird and almost kind of like the complete opposite of how I thought to a certain degree up until, like, a couple of years ago. In some ways, because I studied chaos theory so early in life, it was like, if you're not looking at it, it doesn't technically exist. Yes, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in the world that we don't know about, and we see news reports, and a lot of it we actually don't see, but somehow all this is just a tangential runoff of your own existence. So 
So, I mean, to tie this back into free will versus determinism, my argument is, and the one, I've told the story many times, both of you have probably heard it, but for the sake of our listeners, and just for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to remind you of the story. I'm going to run through the fastest version I can. I went to college, and I had a philosophy instructor, and he told me of a time when he was a boy. Okay. And he was a boy, and his mom would let him play all around the street, and the block, and in the lawn, so long as he did not go past the telephone pole across the street. And he asked, well, can I go over there and touch it? And she said, no, you can't go to the telephone pole. You can't go at all. And so, naturally, having his mom tell him that he dare not, should not touch the telephone pole, he doesn't. But he wants to. Right. And, like, he really wants to. But she's always there watching him. And and, and I'm I'm just going to point out here, mom is like God in this weird way. Don't go screw with the thing crazy man well anyways mom goes and does something and um, aunt is watching him but aunt doesn't know the rules knows that you know he's not supposed to go too far but his aunt's like watching TV so now it's his chance and he goes there and to touch the telephone pole so when he touches it immediately to his horror the lights go out on the telephone pole and a telephone pole next to it, and a telephone pole next to that one, and the um, and the aunt's TV, the telephone, you know, goes out, and electricity starts going out all over the place. Oops! <laughs> right. <laughs> so the kid, what? Imagine what the kid has think thinks has happened. Right. I screwed up. I'm sorry, God. Worse, worse than that. Think about this. Not just sorry, God. The, the instructors told us, he said, when that happened, I knew that I had caused all the electricity to go out and that everyone would know that I had done it. Oops. Yeah. Because clearly my mom knew that this would happen. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She told me not to touch it for this very reason. So he ran. He ran for his life. Because he knew that everyone was going to be really mad that he had caused the blackout. That's funny. So when he eventually got tired, cold, hungry, and came slinking back, you know, they had they weren't as mad now. They were like, where the hell have you been? Right. And he comes blubbering back. I, I didn't mean to cause the power. I screwed up. I touched it. Da, 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 da. And they're like, where have you been? <laughs> So the point of the story is, is that even as a little boy, he, his first reaction is, I touched it, the thing happened, I caused it to happen. Yeah. This, to me, is the attack against determinism. The idea is that all the humans, all the time, are convinced automatically that a cause happened when they did something, and then an effect happened. That correlation equals causality. Yeah. Now, he only did it once, and then later, obviously, he became a philosophy instructor, and I hope he touched a lot more telephone poles between now and then. Mm. But if he didn't, I don't blame him. As we all know, that's a requisite for philosophy. I yeah. don't even know if uh, I touched any. Yeah, you go, you know, I challenge all of you listeners to go and touch a telephone pole, and uh, if the power goes out, well... 
Unless you live, we in like, know. Unless you live in like a really hot state, because that tar can get sticky. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, don't do it. Never mind. <laughs> Look, I told you not to touch it. Never touch it. <laughs> Never touch it. It's for your own protection. <laughs> well, you know, there's all kinds of things like this. I've talked about this too. The rain dance. You go out every morning. You do a little dance outside your teepee. One day it rains. You're convinced it rained. You pray for somebody to get better. You pray and pray and pray. And then they get better. I'm the best. And you thought, man, because we prayed, it caused that person to get better. Yeah, I mean, not to try to layer too many philosophy discussions on at once, but, um, you know, part of the reason why I'm a little, I guess, wishy-washy about deciding one or the other is because I believe in the importance of human construct. You know, there is a, a debate to be made about whether or not good and bad are aspects of reality or aspects of human construction. I know a lot of it's a matter of perception because the right. the classic example or the new classic example, the paladin going in to fight the horde of orcs. He's the hero to himself and his people, but to the orcs, he's the final boss that's invading their land. Exactly. And so there I remember in high school I uh, came upon the realization that um, or played around with the ideas of universal goods and wrongs and um, eventually had to come to the conclusion that there really wasn't any universal good or bad. That by the laws of probability it just isn't likely. You and, got Fifty um, Shades of Grey. And so I had to are. I had to consent concede that um, good and bad were constructions of or like, like were social constructions and had no physical form that these are things that we impose individually on just about fucking everything yet that doesn't mean that they're not important just because they don't physically exist doesn't mean that they don't have social they don't have value and value itself is another human construct as far as we're aware we invented this idea of value systems and impose it upon everything. I will contend that um, evil does exist. Uh-oh. Yeah, oh and that you can be just simply mean-spirited and apply your cruelty regardless of the system. Well, so do you believe that that evil exists as as a physical form? That they are universally considered evil? That even the evil guy himself considers himself evil oh yeah i wouldn't say that actually i'll tell you what i would say that yes even even sociopaths eventually know that they do bad things right they do things that are terrible but they're so habitual at it that they get off on it that's the problem well the the idea here is that for example like when you deal with these like exceptionally sick people right the idea is that they really don't care what they do. It's not like they have like an objective one thing that they do. It just turns out that everyone's really turned off by serial killers and murderers and liars. That's just most cultures don't like serial killers, murderers, and liars, almost objectively. But these guys actually won't settle for just that. They'll do other things that people don't like that are for, the, for that cultural norm just to, just to get to them, just to fuck with them, to purposely cause them misery yeah i mean i know what what really challenges my um 
uh, opinion that I or the conclusion that I came to is that there does seem to be a universal concept of good and evil. Particularly, the concept of love challenges my consideration. I think we can come to a universal idea that love exists. I we might not that. universally define love, but we agree that it exists. Well, like for me, like a good example of just like blatant evil is, um, unfortunately, there's this myth that a lot of Nazi scientists were doing legitimate research. Right. And there were a few that were. But, uh, frankly, a lot of these scientists, scientists, and they were doctors, mind you. With air quotes, right? Yeah. I mean, some of them were actual legitimate doctors, but the science they were doing is not science. Right. They were pretty much just, like, bringing men in, and uh, they would go to Hitler or the SS, and they'd say, hey, look, I'd like the grant. Would you give me 60 prisoners, and I'll do studies? And the studies they would do would just be horrific torture experiments. Yeah. And sometimes they take some notes, but they wasn't like hardcore science. No. There's only a few of these human trial experiments that might actually pass the science. Most of them were just torture camps ran by doctors in their own perverse way. Yeah. They are evil people. They want to cause pain and suffering even under the guise, even pretending that they're doing it for some nobler goal like science. They're, you know, they can be as deluded as they want. They are mean, disturbed people. Well, yeah, and I'm not going to argue that, that, you know, like, I mean, clearly there are majorities on these opinions. Sure. You know, the minorities should not be counted, um, <clears throat> should not be counted against the majority, but they are con- counted against the consensus. Sure. Like, I think, to me, the problem is, is that, what one man, like let's say a man says, oh, homosexuals are evil, right? That's actually much less, um, you know, that, that's a very, like, for this culture, maybe they think that's evil, right? Whereas, to me, I guess I'm just deconstructing evil down all the way down to just the root intent is to cause other people suffering. Well, and, and part of the reason, like, this debate exists in philosophy is because, you know, like, scientifically, when you study, say, the properties of gravity, all gravity behaves a certain way. Yeah, for when, the most part. When gravity doesn't behave that certain way, we call it an aberration, and we try to figure out why. Yeah, we might even call it a new thing if we've discovered enough. Exactly. And so, like, when I was looking at properties of good and evil being you know, physically manifest as as scientific solids. Oh yeah. You could not find a universal. Yeah, it's really And that's tough. why I was like, it becomes a social construct and is in the um, department of philosophy. You know, you, you move it over there now, away from regular science, and go like, good luck, guys. Have at it. Well, you know what's really <laughs> crazy is philosophers get a bad t- a good bit, get a bad rap, and I see you... They do uh, in the modern age. Yeah, I see the hand, buddy. Oh, I was just thinking about how, I mean, going away from the philosophy side of it, looking at it from a physics perspective, if you were to quantify, like, good and evil, the most obvious and most common personification of good would be the sun. I mean, it has its own bad connotations. It causes cancer. It's hot. And all this other stuff. But we wouldn't exist without it and all this other stuff. So we, I mean, this is one of my own personal studies and all this other teaching is how the Bible personifies Jesus and Jesus is essentially a, uh, 
allegory for the sun and the sky, literally. And if we were to say that there's a force of good that is a physical object that we can see and feel and all this other stuff, it would be the sun. But conversely, we don't have anything that's technically bad except for the actions of others or something like the concept of death. Well, we can't say that the sun is an example of good because then, you know, Garner helping me out when I'm in a pinch isn't like the sun. Uh, that's that's up for <laughs> But debate. I would call that good. I mean, maybe he you know? really radiated. He radiated goodness onto... Yeah, we can metaphorically explain it, but we can't scientifically say, Garner, you know, loaning me a hundred bucks when I hit, you know, when my bank went overdue. It's um, 10 to the negative 7th's good. Yeah, it displays the properties of a star. But it's still good <laughs> like a star because it gives you the ability to keep going. Without right, the and, star, and metaphor, everything. metaphor um, certainly has a language science to it, but not a physical science. So I'm going to talk about the other science that I personally feel should stop calling itself a science so much. Uh-oh. My other favorite one is economics. Uh-oh. <laughs> You're right. This is terrible. This is terrible. So in economics, um, they try really hard in economics to be a science. More science than, frankly, oftentimes sociology. Oh, boy. But these guys like to tackle all kinds of tricky subjects. And the one that they tackle a lot is um, that is really hard to economically model is spite. Ooh, uh, uh, no. I can, and it is a serious economic issue. Well, yeah, but I, mm, man, that yeah. that is a tough one. No, uh, not to self plug too hard, but our first episode of Book Bash is um, about a book um, written by an economist and um, psychology major, and so it's it's not surprising to me that. Um, that they would attempt something like this. Oh, yeah. But it is surprising to me that they still have the nerve to try to call it a hard science. <coughs> These guys, the, what they do, because <coughs> in the sciences, you got to be able to measure stuff. Right? right. We were just talking about this. This is what yes. we got into. How many suns am I away from, you know, is my $100 gift to, I don't know, Planned Parenthood, plus <laughs> episode one, yeah. you should hear that. So I give some money to Planned Parenthood and... Uh, now they write me endless letters, so uh, clearly they're in the spite camp. Uh, but anyways, man. Um, you're really layering it on now. I'm layering it on now. I'm <laughs> slamming this. Watch episode one. Uh, listen to episode one. This goes deep. The idea is that... We're going to earn our tangent name right yeah, here. Yeah, we're going to do it right here. So the idea is that the sun, you know, if you try to measure like how many suns I am away, my one activity, like I joked, you know, it's 10 to the, you know, uh, you know negative seventh. <laughs> like sun's good right so economists though are really into this so why, how they try so hard to be scientists is they have tried and have done very successfully but still have to work with it model spite right they can get it down to dollar amounts like how much it takes for you to want to spite someone huh I mean, and that, yeah that doesn't seem too surprising I mean 
going into games because games the 40k thing where it's like well you're worth less than the bolter that you're gonna lose so I mean that's Warhammer 40k yeah so measuring something like that in our own society doesn't seem too surprising especially in economics I mean calling it a hard science is kind of weird because it's like trying to study living organisms but I suppose that's still a science in and of itself but an economic living organism I know that that's kind of a stretch for some but concerning the way we track things like the stock market it doesn't seem too surprising and in some ways I can actually kind of work out some of the algorithms for how it would go for measuring spite but man that, that's that's so, even mind-blowing for me I'm, I'm curious and I don't know if I can do the fact check quick enough on this one but I'm curious as to how long economics has tried to be a science well they call themselves a science all the time. Sure, but I mean, I'm wondering how long the science of economics has been a department. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, because, you know, I mean, we, I remember taking, um, gosh, what was it? I think it was astronomy class in high school. Right. We both had the same astronomy teacher, right? Mr. Morgan, man, that guy died in a shed. Yeah. The snow fell down the on snow him. Snow collapsed on the shed. I went what to a his way funeral, to go. actually. Really? Yeah, I did. And, um, but yeah, the, uh, he, in his class, he did a lot about, um, historical science, uh, scientists and philosophers, you know, like, or astronomers, rather. And he would go over about, like, you know, Galileo and, and, and all these classical names, but he did it in a progressive way where it showed you, like, how they would postulate theories and then be completely disproven by the next guy, who'd completely disprove the next one, and, and laid out this nice tapestry of showing how science is basically... You know, um, finding a, the most pop current way to disprove the other thing. And a lot of modern science is set on the grounds of being able to disprove something, not prove something. Right. They, they prove it by the process of eliminating, you know, the arguments against it. And so they constantly have to, to, to challenge the concept in order to eventually be like, well, this seems to be... This seems to hold up. But there isn't, like, as far as I'm aware, like a hard-set threshold. And yet, in history, it's clearly shown that we would believe the world was flat until it was undeniably not flat. Man, this is kind of creepy because it feels like going back to the investigations and trials in uh, Dark Heresy. You remove everything that it isn't, and then you're left with only what it might be. And with sufficient trial and error and testing, you can prove that it is or isn't. But I suppose that uh, science is kind of an offshoot of philosophy, but with much harder mathematical equations tied to well, it. Well, and the fantasy game setting only had the modern setting to be built upon. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why they call it a PhD. You have you have essentially ascended to the point that you have a philosophy <laughs> of the thing. Yes. Yeah. They're like, you've actually learned so much about it that you've hit the realm of no one really can prove the shit you say except you. It's theory right. crafting. It's like religion. Oh, yeah. I believe in gravity. So... So anyways, um, economics, the ones that we talk about on our Facebook and the shit that we talk about on our news sites, and that kind of economics is the reason why economics struggles a lot with being a science, because macroeconomics um, deals with a 
big problem that science requires. The problem where you need to have a control group, nation A, where you get rid of the minimum wage, and in every way it's identical to another group where you raise the minimum wage. It just turns out that me going to the state of Oregon and saying, hey, um, you guys, we're going to completely abolish your minimum wage, and we're going to leave Washington, we're going to give them a nice hookup, um, and we need to do this trial for 10 years, by the way. Yeah. And if your state goes to fucking hell, well, it was for science. Turns out nobody does that. Right. So, go ahead. It would be awesome, though. Sorry. I was yeah. thinking about how we could just absorb Oregon and ever inch closer to taking over <laughs> California and Vancouver, B.C. No, no, no. Oregon would be the, the science state. That's where we do all our horrific control groups. Okay, vaults for everyone. Be like everyone, be like this year, we need you to conform to the new science project. No, <laughs> <laughs> this is a plot for an RPG waiting to happen. Yes, but so the problem with macroeconomics is it's really hard to actually take like two almost indistinguishably the same cities nations, whatever, and say, yeah, they're 100% the same, and I'm going to do one little change over here, and I'm going to do a slightly different change, and I'm going to leave the other one the same. And then I'll compare. And then, because it's science, I need to be able to do this experiment many, many times. So I guess I'll just need a few states or cities. Yeah, I mean, there are, there is some of that going on, but only by degrees. For example, you know, last was it this year or last year? Colorado and Washington State both passed their um, their versions of... Uh, Smoke whatever you want? Yeah, of uh, the green laws, you know, smoking marijuana. And so there will be economic evidence, which I was most excited to, to vote yes for, to see, to show the federal level what the difference is between states that don't have any legalization, states that have medical legalizations, and now the states that just have um, recreational legalization. And we're seeing huge tax bonuses for the states, so it seems to be pretty good so far. Right. The challenge is, though, is on a science level, you need to have a state that's almost just like Washington that's not doing it and compare over a long time. And Oregon isn't doing it. Right. (laughs) <laughs> so we have we have a one-off. And California has the medical. Right. We're just doing a one-off. And so the problem with macro-econ is that, like I said, I need a second, third, and fourth Oregon and a second, third, and fourth Washington. Yep. And they need to be mostly demographically the same. Well, I think that's why Colorado was a good pick. Yeah. You know, because Colorado is um, similar in some regards to Washington, but still different enough that it's going to have some contrast versus the other states. And by the way, what's so, your... You're welcome, America. The West Coast has got you covered. We're doing the science experiment for you. West yes. Coast, best coast. <laughs> That's right. So the the challenge here with macro is that um, oftentimes it's hard to conduct the experiments, but they do just what you said. They'll say, yeah, but we compared these other two things that kind of ran the experiment for us, Right, and then we did we plugged in the numbers and then massaged it a bit, and then we wrote a paper. It's very college science. So yeah, and so macros like that, but there's microeconomics where they can actually definitively show that if like you know worker A swivels his hips and picks up two different tools versus worker B who only picks up his tool once, you can actually scientifically show that the guy who only picks up his tool once gets more shit done. Right, right. 
between switching tasks over and over. Yeah, what's interesting to me, because, you know, I, I might come off like I'm shitting on the science of economics a little bit as being legit, but there is some of it that definitely rings to its benefit. Like, you know, the book we read by Dan O'Connorman, Thinking Fast and Slow, there is a, um, a portion in that book where he covers um, how... Uh, I'm trying to remember. It's like if you're um, negotiating the price on something and they set a price reference point. The anchoring price. Thank you. Anchoring. Yep. How, how the anchoring effect is measurable across multiple different people from different economic backgrounds. And, um, and yet it all seems to follow a consistent math. Which, you know, is really kind of bizarre when you first encounter it. Especially since, you know, a lot of his book about is about how your intuition is all fucked up and, and doesn't work the way you'd think it does and sometimes works against you. And yet, in this instance, it's not only consistent um, per person, but consistent across the board in a measurable way is kind of, kind of uh, eye-opening to the possibilities of the size of economics. I'm just going to jump in and mention anchoring real quick in case you didn't read the book, but I think you should. While you do that, I'm going to refresh my drink. All right. So the idea of anchoring is, let's say somebody comes to you and says, hey, um, would you be willing to do the dishes and um, uh, mow the lawn every single week for five bucks? No. Yeah. Okay. And then... See, Brady's like, no. <laughs> right? And I'm like, whoa. Like, you're not even compromising at all, Brady. I mean, like, would you, will you go halfway? Will you will you do mow the lawn three times a week and do the dishes three times a week for five bucks? Well, considering that no one else is giving me the offer, I suppose yes. Right? So, <laughs> so, so the idea here is that if you come off really strong with this, like, if you anchor it around... You know, uh, 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 when you're anchoring it around this really tough and almost intractable position, it makes it hard for people to negotiate down very far. Like, you were already like, well, I guess I'll go halfway. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, and so that's anchoring in effect. Yeah. Like, let's say a car's $20,000. You don't come up to the guy and say, hey, I'd like it for 4000 He's already anchored the price at twenty. Yep. If you negotiate it down to 16000 then... You feel like you got a deal, I guess, but he anchored the price. You know, maybe maybe you could have come to him. Let's say there was no price on it, and you came to him and be like, "Hey, man, um, I'll buy that car for fifteen thousand." And then you guys would argue around that price. And so that's the difference. Now I'm yeah. thinking about how much it takes yes. to make the car, and how much it costs to ship it out and put it on the lot and all this stuff because I would I've never actually bought a new car or even a used car that wasn't like someone I know but if I had the ability I think I would probably try and be like bare bones this is what it comes out of the factory I will pay you the cost of shipping and the storage time on the lot (laughs) and that's it I know how much this is worth. Have you ever, I'm taking it. Have you ever heard of the Kelly Blue Book? Uh, yes. Okay. Because for a lot of people, that's the anchoring point. Okay, is that kind of like what I'm trying to do? Well, it, it Kelly Blue Book, and I don't know how they calculate it, but they will calculate the cost of um, 
a car based on average use over time. Mm. And so if a car has been sold, say, by this date, they'll calculate how much its um, depleted value is to the to now. If it's in fine working condition, and they'll be like, it's actually worth this much. That's where you should start. And if there's any extra problems with it, you'll need to drop it accordingly. So it might tell us if Toyota actually has the best uh, operational history out of all the cars recently within the last... 30 years or whatever? Uh, supposedly. Hmm. So, driving this tangent train back to spite. <laughs> Toyota better pay me for this. <laughs> what? We don't, de- we don't re-rail this train. We don't, we're, <gasps> it's derails only. <laughs> Crashing trains into the parliament. Wait. That's it. Maury, you're driving the train the wrong way. Back into the spite. Um, no, Rick, you're an asshole. I don't want to drive it back in spite. <laughs> We're doing spite, Morty. Come on, get angry. So, um, what they the most common spite experiment is they'll say, "Hey, here's twenty bucks, Josh. What? I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you twenty dollar. Cool. Yeah. And um, and you can give Brady as much money of that twenty dollars as you want. I don't want any of it. This is obviously dirty. And if dirty. Brady agrees, then you both get to have the money. But if Brady disagrees, then neither of you get any. Ooh, okay. Shit. I'll I'll accept this, but I don't want any. So to make this extra cruel, Brady, I'm gonna argue that you get eighty percent of this because you have the hardest decision to make. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Knowing so. your in- knowing your aversion to have receiving charity, while your um, while your freedom of giving charity. No. You you'll gladly make sure that I get money for charity, but if it largely benefits you, you're adverse to it. So now you need to have eighty percent of this twenty dollars. Okay, we can do the eighty percent back and forth until you get all of it, right? Or almost all of it? No. Oh. And I will also refuse your your food offerings for a month. Oh, okay, fair enough. (laughs) I'm okay with this. So the science shows that if you actually try to say, I'm going to keep $16 for myself and I'll give you four. Yeah. That in general, almost all humans, regardless of culture, are like, that's not fair. (laughs) Yeah. Right? That's not cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, um... You know what? What a lot of people will agree to, and what they saw in the experiments a lot is the one guy's like, "Well, I want to make sure I get my money, so I'll just be like, hey, you want ten bucks? I'll take ten bucks, and they'll split fifty-fifty." But on occasion, and this is what the researchers wanted to study, was when one guy said, oh, "Look," um, and sometimes they'd frame it. They'd say, "Josh found twenty dollars on the ground, and you were both walking together." Yeah. Boom! Twenty dollars for Josh. And then you're like, hey, I was there. I could have picked it up too. So I deserve a certain amount. And what they found is if Josh says, hey, look, I'm going to take 15 and you get five, that a lot of people would be, under those circumstances, will say, you know, I would rather neither of us got any money. They just spite it. Ooh, that's, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. And this is really tough for in economics because in economics, they imagine the rational human who... Any amount that is greater than zero should be yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you started at nothing. So if Josh says, here's a buck, you should be willing to say... Profit. Profit. I made a buck. For free. I have one more dollar than I had when I started. Turns out, though, that us monkeys, 
don't usually work that way, especially if it works like this. You are both working in a business. You both do roughly the same job, but this monkey gets 80% of the bananas, and the other monkey gets 20% of the bananas. Well, that's like a long-term thing, though. I mean, yeah, I'd probably be resentful if I was only making 20% of the bananas, and then all of a sudden he has this lucky find, and it's like, yeah, I'll give you a dollar. You know, not to not to fall true to form here, but you know what um, um, activity would have a lot of interesting data, I think, in this regard? Here we go. Multiplayer games. Yep. Multiplayer games! We should have a sound effect for this. <laughs> Whatever a philosophical or economic discussion just derails into Fallout. We just uh, hit that air horn. That DJ we hit the air horn. Yeah. MLG Ford Life. Team Fortress 2 sound effects. Greetos, Mountain Dew. Deep breathing intensifies. So... So, Spite and video games. Let's hear it, Josh. Well, I know that all of us here have played some multiplayer games, particularly some team-based games. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, know I wonder I, how. I know you and I, Garner, have been playing Overwatch quite a bit. Nerds. And uh, it, certainly, <laughs> it certainly is uh, um, come up more than a few times when you're playing with a team and one of them gets a little salty and thinks that... The weight is not equally distributed, and so they try to sabotage. Yeah, now they they moved into spite mode. Right. Now there are institutions that that I think do a fair job at discouraging this sort of thing, like you know bans. Yeah, bans are a pretty good. We'll system. punish you for using your spite. Out of the ban. But economic bans usually don't fly. <laughs> You're not allowed to make money for a week. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out that tends to hurt economics. It's funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I know that there's... Uh, what's interesting to me is that in video games, there is a lot of data... Being a data medium um, that is just openly generated by the users. And so I'm surprised it's not tapped more often than it is. I mean, there is a lot of data about it in psychology. My favorite is they call it the alternate win condition. Yeah. So it is not uncommon in a game to be, like, so clearly on the losing team. Right? Right. Um, in, in a particular game, one where for a while there was... Um, you might have heard of the game. It's like 13 years old and people still play it. It's called World of Warcraft. <laughs> People play this game a lot. I don't, I don't know if you call it old. Well, I mean, they keep redoing it. It's ultra modern. Look, you know, like when my own daughter is almost the age of that video game. I don't know. Just putting it out there. Old is relative, but <laughs> your daughter hasn't had like what thirteen patches? Yeah, <laughs> overhauls. We patch her every uh, <laughs> few months. <laughs> Ooh, I only get seven years. Oh, well. Well, yeah. We just do a complete overhaul of you. They re- we release Brady 2 Ooh, every seven years. I haven't seen him yet. <laughs> yeah, you're actually Brady 4. When the old one happens, all the players just migrate. Whoa. And they stop playing the old one entirely. Whoa. We don't talk about EverQuest 1. <laughs> we don't talk about... We want to play EverQuest 2 now. Ooh. <laughs> old Brady's just... We just got rid of him. Oh, Fuck wow. it, that game was good, but the new one is the hot shit. Okay. 
But yeah, so World of Warcraft. So World of Warcraft, um, for a while there, um, all the PvP players played the Horde faction, the Red faction. Yeah. And all the Care Bears played on the Blue faction. Oh, come on. The Blue. Alliance faction. His human pride. Yes. <laughs> That's right. So this is how it was in PvP for the first year or so. And it was not uncommon if you randomly joined a battleground as an alliance. I mean, it was like clear as freaking day that there was just like people just like slotting off, doing whatever, don't give a damn. They're here for their honor points. And they're not really trying to win. And they've already consigned to the idea that they're going to lose. Out of the Horde team, guys... Actually, I remember I used to play a little bit of Horde, and um, whenever it seemed like we might lose, someone would be like, are we seriously going to lose? (laughs) Like, their expectations are about to be violated hard. It's impossible to lose to the Alliance, right? Like, if we lose, we are a total disgrace. It's so true. I've seen it. Right, they literally type out and be like, are we seriously losing? Pull it together, chuckleheads. Like, the assumption is that you will win. So anyways, if you play on the Alliance side, though, this thing starts to happen. Like, even if you had teammates who could probably win, they won't. Instead, they're like out in the middle of the battlefield killing everybody and everything. They're just destroying everything they can and not trying to get the objective. Yeah. And so when the battle's over, they say, GG, I got 107k damage, top damage. They're playing their own game. They have an alternate win condition. Their win condition is, I got the top chart. I... Even if we lose, I win. I owned you. And you start to see this in all kinds of games. Like, I remember I used to play, like, Mario Kart, and some players, like, starts to get, like, way far behind. And, like, the the sixth, the the guy who's super far behind just starts driving backwards, and it's just like, I'm going to see how many times I can lap you guys backwards. Let's see how often he can get a blue shell and fuck the first player. Yeah, just screw up somebody. Just, Just, they start to play their own win condition he an asshole well i mean there's obvious uh like overboard extents of it but at least in something like wow you have match over and it's like okay well time limit back to town well i mean to kind of drive back to the 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 data aspect of it um i know you played the game garner um i can't remember the name of it right now so help me out it's uh one of those storytelling choice based games where your character can rewind time. Oh my gosh, life is strange. Yeah, so life High is strange. High school chicks having drama. Yep. Yes. Life is strange is interesting when I discovered that um, all the choices you make, provided you have an internet connection while you're playing, are loaded up to the servers and compared against all of the other players. They copied Telltale games, by the way. Right, and so Telltale games. Such innovation. <laughs> does this also, and that they've. They're contabulating a survey of choices. Yes. And these are these are hypothetical scenarios, but they demonstrate uh, a philosophy, and they are um, polling basically of, by volunteer of, of playing the game. Um, Whether or not you killed that dog. They're right, exactly. testing chaos theory. <laughs> but they're basically polling the gaming market as far as like decision making goes. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of evil people out there 
that just go with the numbers instead of making a decision. Yeah, you know who you are. You're like, oh, but a thousand faceless nobodies. Yeah, I'm going to stick by my you suffer the consequences choices. I'm still happy how it turned out, though. Everyone mm. dies except for the main characters. Yes. yes. I don't know. The game's not been out long enough that I'm willing to discuss the stuff that happened in it. I feel like it sure. is spoilers. What? But, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting. So you, you think that there are people that, that look up what the majority chooses before they make a choice? Oh, no. I'm actually referring to the ending. So the ending is a... The needs of the many versus the needs of the one. Oh, and do they show you the percentages before you choose? No. No. Yeah, that's what I thought. So the game um, shows you the, your choice versus the masses after you've made it. Right. And so there is still an aspect of it that is like taking um, an anonymous test, you know, or, or an anonymous survey, rather. The worst part is... All the individuals have different results, you know, except for, like, the later groups, mostly, because in the beginning days, everyone's, like, super divergent, and then eventually, after the game solidifies and has mass popularity, it's like, oh, this was the most popular decision. Oh, well. Or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, in in survey taking, you want to have a broad test group. You know, you want more people than less because there's less opportunity for you know, the aberrant figure to show up. Mm -hmm. You could encounter 500 people that are actually velociraptors. Right. <laughs> you want a little bit more than that for your survey. 16 people <laughs> accidentally missed the like button on this YouTube video. Yeah, they only had the three claws, and it was really hard to, to do that quick time event. You know? <laughs> we're like, look, I'd like to ask you something here. Um, I see that you identify as a velociraptor. Um, how do you feel about KFC? Just scratch here on the thing. <laughs> we need your scroll. And it turned out that um, the only difference between the various uh, subjects interviewed is that some of them attacked the interviewer. The renegade option. The renegade option, like, I won't choose. <laughs> <laughs> what would be funny is there's some scientist out there who just like desperately needs to get tenure and he publishes a paper anyways and is like this question is offensive proof <laughs> <laughs> it turns out like 500 people if you survey 500 people it is enough to publish wow but that's considered pretty statistically significant it seems kind of crazy yeah well, it doesn't doesn't satisfy me but I don't know going back to something we were talking about before the podcast considering that there's only like 300 to 500 genetic variations with humans the paper that surveyed 500 people sounds pretty good well yeah if you believe in determinism yeah <laughs> that determinism yo hey I only believe in it like 10% of the time well there you go look I believe in free will and that your mind and body and philosophy is lying to you. Nothing is happening because you think it's happening. It's the year 3,502. Nothing no. happens because you want it to happen. I think I think that might be about as, as full circle as I could have brought it. So, uh, I don't know. Do we want to wrap? Well, I mean, like... Um, How long have we been going? About an hour-ish. Yeah, but DP said that we can't just suddenly end it. So we have to talk about um, raptors more, or we could talk about, you know... Well, I do have one little interesting aspect of philosophy that always that always kind of interests me that I haven't found a lot of really great data on in my meager attempts to research it, mm -hmm. and that is uh, regarding trends. 
like Ooh. popular trends. Um, what makes it popular? For example, I was listening to another podcast um, called The Thrilling Adventure Hour, which Ooh. is um, it's kind of an odd one in that it's a live performance in the style of old timey radio, and so they like you know they they do a stage performance that's more or less like a script read and they literally stand there on the on the stage with a script and reading um performing a story um but it's also recorded as a podcast and it's really entertaining it's all done in a comedy style but it's also done with those sort of old tropes of old radio serials you know i feel terrible they're like one of their sponsors you feel terrible i've I haven't listened to any American versions of these, but I've heard a lot of these in Japanese. Oh, yeah? They're very popular over there. Oh, gosh. Well, this one in American is really funny and was fairly popular and uh, before they kind of stopped doing them. But mm. they've got, like, over 200 episodes, so there's plenty to go through. What was the name again? Thrilling Adventure Hour. Okay, I'll look them up. Yeah, um, and... Uh, I'll probably drop a link in the description because they're awesome if you don't know about them. Plug in! And, um... They, uh... Like they, they'll advertise. They'll, they'll joke that their sponsor, one of their sponsors, is Patriot brand cigarettes. You know, <laughs> and so it's got this old style of like. <laughs> what the fuck? Did Patriot, you hear them preach you? <laughs> yeah, Patriot brand cigarettes oh, are good Patriot. for your constitution. Oh, you know, nice. so, okay, okay, so okay. smoke up. You know, and, gotcha. and that sort of ridiculous stuff. That and, is old. <laughs> um, and then uh, recently, uh, my girlfriend posted a Facebook video of. Um, a popular song I'm trying to recall at the moment. I want to say it's, um, I can't remember the name, but it was a popular song, but the video was all of, uh, um, black and white era tap dancers, you know, performing and stuff. And it was all done in rhythm with the music. And it got me thinking of like all these old classic musicals that have all these dance routines and stuff in it and how even like tap dance itself is no longer popular. There's like no room for it in the modern scope oh, yeah, yeah. of popularity. Yeah. And and the same as and you know, so like Thrilling Adventure had some of these similar old tropes that just don't exist anymore. You know, there's just no room for them. And unless they are a parody or some kind of obscure callback. They were displaced by the other alien I mean, memes. Even like, modern musicals are usually like heavy very point-pushing films, you know, real art pieces that aren't, that don't have, like, the fun and joviality of, like, Singing in the Rain does. And now a tap dancing interlude by Shirley Temple. Right, you know, and, and it's just, like, it kind of makes me wonder, like, you know, what is it about, like, popularity and trends that, that move it? And a lot of modern opinion is, like, you know, the media has, like, this large stake in controlling, you know, what is popular, but I feel like that certainly wasn't always the case, is that the media would, would deliver what the audience wanted. Well, one... But it feels like there's been this tripping point recently where, you know, the media is now telling us what we want. Yeah, I've been actually thinking about this and talking about this with other people recently. It's kind of weird they bring it up because I was thinking about the divergence and fracturing of various things because we see this in especially like music nowadays yeah. we have 
metal. What did metal mean, like, back in the 70s? It meant hair metal and maybe Ozzy Osbourne and a couple other things. But now it's like, oh, industrial metal, death metal, uh, screamo, and all yeah. this other weird stuff. So well, it's just... music did it really fast. It's it? the evolution of the trends, but because we have the mainstream and the popular and all this other stuff, it's still these old empires of what have you that are like, okay, this is what we see as popular and all this other stuff. So it's just this terrible cluster of, I mean, in some ways it goes back to kind of like They Live, where even <laughs> if you listen to the radical extremist music that you're not supposed to be listening to, it's still controlled in some areas by certain groups. Sure. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'm going to tie it back into this Warcraft thing. The market responds to alternate wind conditions, too. If you can't beat them, it's not join them. You go find the other thing and you do that thing. There's money over here. I'll tell you what. Like Let's say let's say 90% of the market over here likes, I don't know, tacos. But you can sell upscale tacos and serve this other 10%. Then, boom. That become, and let's say it's really popular, those 10%, and they start to convert over other people. So it works. So you work on this alternate wind condition where you try another divergent ankle. In our data-driven society today, people are constantly exploring the alternate wind condition. You know, that actually makes a lot of sense when I consider, like, uh, most popular YouTubers. Um, I'd say that there's a surprising number of them that wanted to get into television first. Right. When they realized that what they wanted to do in television just wouldn't work because the market's so fucking controlled by those who own it. Voice actors are the worst. <laughs> but, uh, um, and so they found a medium to do whatever it was they wanted to do and built an empire on it. Right. And so what we, what I think we see in today's market is like when it comes to trends and whatnot, is it so much easier to target your niche group and siphon money from them, frankly, <laughs> that it's a lot easier for all these divergent alternate wind conditions. You just got to find your own way. And, and it's, it's sort of like, and let's be clear here, it's not cool, and everybody knows this, it's usually not cool to do what everyone else is doing, the same old, same old. Sure. Like if you're divergent, if you do something neat and people respond to it well, then it could become a trend. But everything's been done before. We gotta, I mean, we're rehashing and recycling things that were so old. Mm. I've been seeing an uptick in, like, swing music. It's been electrified and all this other cool stuff. I feel as though that, going back to your trends and stuff to a degree, uh, like, how the old-timey stuff could make a comeback. I mean, we have the big goth scenes, uh, goth lily and all this other stuff that emphasizes that elegant dress and the mannerisms and all this other well, stuff. Let me tackle it from another perspective. Say, for example, like, because we've been, you know, we're all, like, around 30 years old, and, you know, we've had three decades on this planet so far, and we've already seen, like, 80s and 90s and 70s trends repeat themselves by some degree. Mm -hmm. But we haven't seen, like, the 20s. Well... You know, like, for example, for a very long portion of recorded histories, there was a fashion of hat. Yeah. Like, the bowler hat. This, this generation has not seen a fashionable, like, accepted hat. 
Like, there's not a hat you could wear to a fancy dress party. I said, well, mm, I guess it depends on the fancy dress party. Because if you're wearing, like, the black tie thing, yeah, you can't wear a uh, baseball cap or whatever. But I've yeah. seen, like, baseball caps, uh, the 10-gallon Texas hat, and stuff like that be socially acceptable at some pretty high-class events. Yeah, acceptable, though, is different than having this popular trend. You know, like... Um, you know, just like there is a long line of, of headwear that was just sort of considered with formal attire until some at one point they just stopped doing it. The tricorn, I guess. And then they never look back. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're evolving. <laughs> I mean, everything has to be simpler nowadays. So well, like, having there, the fancy just, hats is not. But there's been no modern iteration of like you know you you see the feather headdress. Yeah, you don't see people in Hollywood that are just like this is the hat now to wear for high class society. Well, I think that some of that might have to go back to this is before the podcast the symmetry we see in humans because we're kind of like perfecting our face and our hair and all this other stuff in degrees that is unfathomable to the old school days. And for the most part, they used the headdress stuff as compensation for their flaws and their genetics. So, animal Well, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a flaw. Often, a lot of times, like, you know, cosmetic makeups is considered an... and blech. Is considered an accentuation, or... Am I saying that right? Accentuation? Thank you. Yeah. Accentuation... Of what is already there. Oh, yeah, that's kind of a hard thing because it's called makeup for a reason. It's to make up for certain things. You can accentuate things, but a lot of makeup is to cover up the imperfections. It, it, but, I mean, I've, to be honest, I've seen enough makeup tutorials. Like, I, I'll actually sit down and watch a makeup tutorial because I want to learn how to draw makeup better. And most of them, it's a combination of covering up and accentuating. Okay, yeah, it's definitely an art form. I'll give it that. And yeah. Especially when it comes to hardcore prosthetics and costumes and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, makeup when you're trying to recreate an alien or a monster, it's different. But, yeah. I'll tell you what. I want to argue with you next time about this idea that all these ideas are just being repeated and there are no new or original ideas. Yeah, that would be a good topic. Yeah, I want to I wanna be like, first off, I just want to stamp all over that idea and defecate on it, which is why you should vote for me as dictator 2016. <laughs> I will amend the Bill of Rights to give you the right to take a shit. Hey, Garner, 2016. It's his defense, hope. It, could, it couldn't be worse than Trump, right? The Matrix is real. <laughs> Trump is just a machine sent from the future. Never man. argue about bathrooms again. I will give you the right you never had M- Morty, to use the bathroom. Morty, you gotta save me. <laughs> well, I think that's gonna be the show today. I uh, hope you enjoyed and uh, will join us next time. And a ride with the tangent train. Tangent train. Oh, Garner. You want to take your bathroom? Shit. Wait, what? I don't want to take your shit. You have the right to shit. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to leave a comment telling us what you think about the show. Or if you have a topic you want to hear us cover, you can tell us that too. Sound effects were provided by Rock Savage and Elijah Unick. Music for the show is provided by Ben Sound. If you like Tangent Train, why not tell your friends about us? That really does help. Thanks. <laughs>